As we continue our look into the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, let me invite you to open to it once again this evening and to settle tonight in the fourth chapter where we pick up the narrative this evening partway through verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1b through the end of the chapter. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it, or you may notice that NASB footnote says it could be he, and I think that's right, that he, uh, the Lord, may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, How did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. 
But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because her father-in-law and her because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. Father, come tonight and grant that I would preach your word with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. Grant, God, that All of us would be fed on your word, by your word tonight. And that some, someone or some ones might leave tonight, though I do not know who they are and why they may need this message, but that someone or someones would leave saying, that was exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you, God. Do that for us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 4,000 Israelite lives, verse 2, have just been lost at the hands of their enemies, the Philistines. 4,000 men subtracted from the ranks of the army, of course. Uh, 4,000 reasons for uh, wives or mothers or other loved ones to mourn. 4,000 futures snuffed out here. And when their compatriots return to the Israelite encampment in verse 3, the elders of Israel begin discussing what went wrong. The elders ask in verse 3 a very good question. And that's the first heading tonight, a very good question. And the question is this in verse 3, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's a good question, and for a couple of reasons. One reason is because the question rightly recognizes, doesn't it, that it is the Lord who's done it. Why has the Lord defeated us today? The question that these elders are asking is not one of military strategy or of military might. It's not a question of secondary causes, It's not always bad to ask about secondary causes, but the question that they're asking here recognizes that God is the primary cause. Why has the Lord defeated us today? The question they're asking recognizes that God is sovereign over their affairs. It recognizes, as Paul would put it later, that God works all things after the counsel of his will. And so it's a good question for that reason, and I hope you recognize uh, what they recognize, that God is sovereign over your affairs, even when things, as in this passage, go painfully. The Lord is the one who gives victory, and the Lord is the one who gives defeat in our lives. That's one reason why this is a good question there in verse 3a, because it recognizes the sovereignty of God. But then also this question here in verse 3 is a good one because it wisely asks why the Lord has done what he's done. Why he's exercised his sovereignty in this particular way. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? What is his reason for doing this? And while we're not always given the answers to such questions, often it is good to pose them, isn't it? Why is God doing this in my life? 
Why has this difficulty come? Is there something I missed? Is there something I should have done differently? Is this God's discipline in my life? Is there something that I'm to learn here positively from this, some deeper level of faith that I'm to come to? Why has the Lord done this? And the Israelite elders are asking that question, and it's a good question. And given what we're about to see, it is very much the right question for them to be asking. Not just a a good question, hmm, I wonder why the Lord's doing this, but the question that they should be asking, that they must be asking, given what we're about to see. But that's where their wisdom, these elders' wisdom, ends. um, Because there is a clear answer to their question. And yet, we're going to see they either don't know the answer, or they've forgotten the answer, or perhaps they simply don't accept the answer. And that brings us to our second heading now. First, uh, we have a, a good question, but now we need to consider the correct answer. The correct answer to the question. And the correct answer to the question actually comes from the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, both of which as you may know, had been written by this time, and both of which contain covenant promises to Israel, to these people who are fighting, who just fought this battle, covenant promises to them which give the answer to the question that the elders are asking here, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So turn with me now, first of all, to Leviticus 26, and then to Deuteronomy 28, where we will discover the answer to the elder's question. I want to read to you from Leviticus 26, verses 1 through 18. These words to the people of Israel, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn towards you and make you fruitful and multiply you and I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be slaves, and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you do not obey me, And do not carry out all these commandments. If instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not to carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. 
I will set my face to face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And then listen along the very same lines in Deuteronomy 28. Verses 1 through 26. And I should say in Leviticus 26, uh, God goes on from verse 18 with more promises to curse disobedience. But Deuteronomy 28 now. Listen to the same, the same ideas. Now it shall be, ch- chapter 28, verse 1, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And then he goes on with more promises of blessing for obedience. Pick up in verse 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And then... More curses follow, and then verse 25, still in the curses, the Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food to all birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away, and so on. Now, did you hear it? In those two passages, the Lord made a covenant with Israel. And among the promises of that covenant was that obedience to his law would lead to military success, as we read, and that disobedience to his law would lead to military failure. Obedience would lead to military success and lots of other blessing as well. Disobedience would lead to military failure and lots of other blessing as well. Just again, look at the key passages with me one more time. Leviticus 26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you, and he lists blessings, including, verse 7, you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. If you're obedient to my laws, that is. 
On the other hand, verse 14, if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as to carry out, so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. And one of the things he says is, I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. And note verse 18, we're going to come back to it. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And again, the same, the same things are there in Deuteronomy 28. The key verses being uh, verses 1 and 2, obedience, and verse 7, promise of military success. And then verse 15, disobedience, followed by the promise in verse 25 of military failure. The Lord made a covenant with Israel, and among the promises of that covenant was that obedience to his law would lead to military success. Victory and disobedience to his law would lead to military failure, defeat. So there are only two options for Israel in this regard. That's not necessarily so for our own country and for other nations, past and present and future. But for Old Testament Israel, there were only two options in this regard. Either obey God's law and succeed militarily, along with all these other blessings, or disobey God's law and be struck down militarily, along with all these other curses. And so, since military success was promised if Israel obeyed, and since military failure was promised if Israel disobeyed, guess what the answer has to be to the question posed by the elders of Israel in 1 Samuel 4 verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The answer, according to the covenant of God, is that the Lord had defeated them before the Philistines because they were not keeping his law. Had they been keeping his law, their enemies would have fallen before them by the sword, Leviticus 27. Had they been keeping God's law, the Lord would have caused their enemies to be defeated before them, Deuteronomy 28, 7. But since the Lord did not do that, and since he instead did what he promised he would do in response to disobedience, the only conclusion that we can come to, and the conclusion that the elders of Israel should have come to, is that the Lord defeated Israel that day before the Philistines on account of Israel's sins. Because they had not been faithful to the covenant. They had not been faithful to keep his law. The sons of Israel, we discover from this passage, were living in these days in 1 Samuel 4 in the same way that we find them living so often in the book of Judges, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. That happens, or we hear that refrain over and over again in the book of Judges. And here we are after the close of the book of Judges, and here they are again, or perhaps still, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And as in Judges, so here the Lord disciplines them. Indeed, he disciplines them exactly according to the words of his covenant with them. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Lord had caused them to be defeated before their enemies. That is the correct answer to the elders' question. 
in verse 3. But we might wonder then, well, why didn't they come up with this answer? If we living all these years later away from the events can look back into Leviticus and Deuteronomy and find the answer to their question, why didn't they come up with this answer? And it's clear from what follows in the remainder of verse 3 that they didn't light upon this answer. They didn't come across uh, the correct answer or didn't uh, accept it at least uh, to the question they were asking. But the, the question I'm wondering is why? And we're not told exactly. But I'm wondering, and and I thought of some possibilities, why, given that God had spoken in two different places in the books of Moses to this very issue of their defeat before their enemies, why didn't the elders of Israel land on the correct answer to this question? One possibility is that they had plumb forgot. That they had just let... Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 slip out of their minds these promises of curse and blessing based on obedience. And that, if that's what happened, that's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? For God's people, particularly for the leaders among God's people, to just forget what God has said. Don't you forget what God has said. Don't you let what God has spoken slip out of your mind. Keep it always before you. Another possibility, and I think probably a more likely one, is not that the elders forgot what God had said, but that they were actually ignorant of what God had said in Leviticus and Deuteronomy on this matter. That they didn't even know what God had said there through Moses regarding the blessings and curses upon them commensurate with their disobedience or obedience. But if they were ignorant, if they didn't know, that actually doesn't mitigate on their behalf. That doesn't cause us to go, oh, well, uh, I mean, at least they did it in ignorance. Um, At least it doesn't mitigate regarding their ignorance of Deuteronomy 28 because the elders along with the priests and the Levites, were the very people that God had assigned in Deuteronomy 31 to make sure that the book of Deuteronomy was read to the whole nation of Israel every seven years. Let me read it to you. Read what what we're told in Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 through 13. Moses wrote this law, which I think means the book of Deuteronomy. It could refer to the larger law of the first five books, but I think probably at least it it means Deuteronomy. Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. So he gives it to the priests, to the Levites, and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, verse 10, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and children and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So you see, if the elders were ignorant here, 
Who did they have to blame? Themselves. They were the very ones, along with the priests and the Levites, who were supposed to give this law to the whole nation. And if they don't know it themselves, they are incredibly negligent in their responsibilities. And I just say to you guys, my fellow elders, let's not be negligent in this way. Let's not be ignorant ourselves of the word of God, which we, in our day, are charged to make our people here. Let's not leave the people ignorant of it either. So maybe they were forgetful. Maybe they were ignorant. But then it's also possible that the reason the elders of Israel did not come, with, come up with the correct answer to their question in verse 3 was not because they'd forgotten what God had said in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. It was not because they were ignorant of it, but perhaps it was just that they didn't want to accept that the promises of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 were certain, or at least they didn't want to accept that they applied in this case. And of course, the reason for this lack of acceptance quite possibly was that they didn't want to have to change. They didn't want to have to repent. If they went back and started really dealing with Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and with the circumstances of this lost battle, they would have had to go, something's not right, we're going to have to lead the people in repentance. Some things are going to have to change morally in Israel. And maybe what happened is they just didn't want that. Maybe subconsciously they never even really went to these passages that they knew about because they just didn't want to go there and, and so their minds didn't even, didn't even consciously uh, think about it. They just started thinking about other things. Maybe consciously they went there and said, nah, can't, that can't be it. But in either case, whether subconsciously or more actively, it's possible that they just didn't want to accept the call to repentance that would have to come if they took God's answer to their question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Because of our sin. And if they answer that way, things have to change. But whatever the case uh, here, whether that's what was going on with these elders or not, it is amazing, isn't it, how we can do this, how the human heart can ignore the word of God and or reject the word of God when the word of God doesn't suit our purposes, when we don't want to be confronted with what the word of God says. It's amazing how we can just overlook certain things in the Bible or actually reject them. Or come up with excuses for why we don't have to do them. Or just ignore them and pretend that they're not there. If I pretend that it's not there, like men, they talk about men who you know, have chest pains and you know, they act like if they pretend that it's not there that it'll go away. And so maybe we do that with the Word of God. If I just pretend like it doesn't say this, then, then it'll go away. I won't have to think about it anymore. It's amazing how we can ignore, reject, overlook the Word of God. So we don't have to do what it says. Even though a person might be living in abject sin, he may often, you may often find yourself saying, this difficulty can't be the, the discipline of God. No, no, there's a scientific reason for this illness that's happening. 
The computer died because it was old. The floor in front of the pornography section in the uh, convenience store just happened to be slick that day. And that's why I fell. It's like a guy who, who drinks Slurpees all morning long. And then when he's tired and falling asleep in the afternoon, he says, you know, I always get sleepy in the wintertime. And then in July, he says, you know, I always get sleepy when the weather gets hot outside. Instead of looking at what's right in front of him, as for the reason for his drowsiness, he comes up with this, that, and the other. And we can do that with sin, can't we? And perhaps that's what's going on here with these elders. Now, let me say, it's true that difficulty and blessing, blessing and cursing in our lives do not always come to us on the same one-to-one correlation with our obedience as they did for Israel under the Old Covenant. Israel was in a unique situation where God promised them very clearly this sort of behavior will result in these sorts of blessings and this sort of behavior will result in these sorts of cursings. Our difficulties and blessings don't always come to us on that same sort of one-to-one basis. However, God still does discipline those he loves, doesn't he? Sometimes difficulty comes upon us even when we're doing right. It's true. And sometimes God continues to give us good things even when we're doing wrong. It's true. But God does still discipline those He loves. And so, if you are doing something that is discipline worthy in your life, if something's going on in your home, in your thought life, in your internet life, in your relationships, in your business dealings, that you know is discipline worthy, and if you then fall on hard times during that same season of your life, you should be asking a 1 Samuel 4, 3 kind of question. Why has the Lord done this? And you should be strongly looking at the possibility of a Hebrews 12, 6 sort of answer. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. I'm concerned that sometimes we as Christians... um, use this and get caught up, but also perhaps subconsciously use this scientific age in which we live where people have figured out all sorts of second causes for why things happen, that we use those discoveries to overlook the primary cause, that God may be bringing about discipline in our lives through various things. We can come up with the human explanations, the scientific explanations for them, But what about God who created the science and who controls how it all plays out? Don't overlook the discipline of God. So let me just ask if anybody, of course, don't raise your hand, but let me just ask you where you sit tonight. Is there anybody who needs to be asking this kind of a question? Why has the Lord defeated me today? And is there anybody who needs to be coming to a Hebrews 12 sort of answer, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines? If that's you, hear the word of the Lord tonight in Revelation 3, where Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. 
And hear the word of the Lord in 1 John 1, 9, where we're told that if we confess our sins, He, the Father, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And two verses before, where He says that the reason we are cleansed, the way we are cleansed, is by the blood of His Son. Be zealous and repent and be covered in the blood of Jesus. Well, the elders of Israel didn't come to the right answer to their question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And having come, not come to the right answer, they also landed upon an inadequate solution. This is the third thing tonight. Uh, a very good question, the correct answer, and then thirdly, an inadequate solution. Listen to it beginning in verse 3. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? There's the question. Now here's the solution. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may, or that he may, and I think again that it's he from the footnote, that he may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. Now what's going on here? Why do the elders think, hey... Let's get the ark of the Lord and God will come among us with the ark and deliver us from the power of our enemies. And why do the people seem to have that same feeling in verse 5 when they shout and shake the earth with their shouting as they see the ark uh, coming into the camp? What's going on? Well, it may be that the elders remembered concerning the ark of God that it was there that God promised to meet with his people, Exodus 25. And so they reasoned, if God meets with his people in the ark, we want God to go with us into battle and give us victory, so let's take the ark because that's where God is. Perhaps also they remembered how when the ark of the covenant had been carried into the Jordan River, when their ancestors had first come into the land of Canaan, when the ark had come into the Jordan River, the river stopped, didn't it? So that their ancestors crossed on dry ground. And maybe they remember, too, that the ark had been with the people when they marched around Jericho all those times before the wall of Jericho collapsed. And so you could see how they would think, well, if the ark is with us, then God will be with us, God's power will be with us, God's victory will be with us. And one way or another, realizing that they needed God to be among them, verse 3, that they needed God to come among them and deliver them, if they were going to defeat the Philistines, they brought the ark out into the camp, verse 5, and then out onto the battlefield, apparently, and they thought that God would go with them if they took his ark with them. But here's the thing. What good was that going to do if they remained in the moral condition that God had promised that he would curse? What good would invoking the presence of God and the power of God among them by the ark do if they continued to live in the ways and not repent of the ways that God had promised to curse? 
no good at all, as we discover. Now, God hasn't definitively promised a curse in the scenario I'm about to pose, the modern-day scenario I'm about to pose. He hasn't definitively promised a curse for these kind of people, but I hope you'll get this illustration nonetheless. I want you to imagine a church. Put yourself now in the modern day. Imagine a church that is filled with infighting, that is plagued with a handful of cases of unrepentant sexual immorality, that is characterized by covetousness, and greed among a good number of its members. And I want you to imagine that church trying to go out and conquer the Philistines, as it were. Imagine that church trying to go out into the neighborhood amongst the unbelievers that live around them and to try to win that neighborhood to Jesus with all the junk that's going on in their own church family and lives. And so they go out and they go door to door with the gospel and they keep having the door slammed in their face and they find that it's just not going well. Um, And they come back and they they say, "Why, why does no one want to listen to us? Why is our sharing of the gospel out in the community totally unsuccessful? And they conclude, you know, the problem is we need to pray more about this outreach. We need to really invite God to go with us next Tuesday night. What would you say to them? Wouldn't you say, I I don't know if the neighbors aren't listening to you and, and, and are even closing the door in your face because they know how you guys live, or whether it's just that God knows and he is shutting things down for you. He's not going to let you conquer the Philistines. He's not going to let you bring people to the feet of King Jesus the way you're living. Well, something of that is what Israel was doing. They may have been right under other circumstances to carry the ark of God out before them. Perhaps not as a guarantee like they may have been thinking it would be here, but at least as a show to God, we need you to go with us. They may have been right under other circumstances to do that, just like a church is right under a lot of circumstances to pray, uh, God, go with us as we go out and share the gospel in this community. But here... The Israelites bringing the ark with them, invoking the presence and blessing of God with them by taking the ark out into the battle is just like us praying for a blessing from God upon our outreach in the community when we have no interest in doing what he says. It's an inadequate solution. And I just, again, I wonder if there's anyone in this room who's who's coming up right now in your life with inadequate solutions to the dead ends that you're running into, the defeats that you're suffering. You're bumping up against defeat, and there's sin in your life, and instead of repenting of the sin, maybe even instead of recognizing that that's the problem, you've been bringing the ark of God with you and saying, God, I'm going to pray harder. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do this or that to try to get you to go with me. When all the while, God is waiting for you to go, God, what I need to pray about is not you um, coming with me to defeat the Philistines. What I need to pray about is you coming alongside and, and helping me repent. Changing my heart and my behavior. There was an inadequate solution 
attempted here. And finally, notice the sad results. Notice the sad results. What happened as a result of these elders' inadequate solution? Well, for one thing, 30 more thousand people died. 30 more thousand men removed from their army. 30 more thousand reasons for uh, wives and mothers and uh, betrothed and brothers and loved ones and sisters and so on to grieve. And do you remember Leviticus? I told you we would come back to Leviticus 26, 18. Let me read verses 17 and 18 to you again in Leviticus 26. Actually, I'll read verse 3 and then verses 17 and 18. You shall keep, uh, excuse me, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, um, verse 7, you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Uh, So, sorry, verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, verse 17, I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. That happened, right? To the tune of, excuse me, to the tune of 4,000 people struck down by the Philistines. But then, listen to verse 8. 18, if also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Now, about 4,000 were killed the first time around, verse 2. Thank you. About 4,000 were killed the first time around, verse 2, and they still didn't get it. And then 30,000 were killed the second time around with these Philistines. And what's 30,000 divided by about 4,000? Seven. Just like God said. If you don't listen, seven times more. 30,000 more people died. That's part of the sad results. Man, I'm getting all the, all the goodies. I have to do this more often. Thirty thousand more people died. Hophni and Phineas died. The Lord was coming for them one way or the other, though, as we read earlier in the book of First Samuel. But they died. Phineas's wife died prematurely. I think that's what we're to understand that uh, she went into labor prematurely when she heard this horrible news about the ark and her husband and her father-in-law. And that having gone into labor prematurely, she died because of it. And Eli, old mixed bag Eli that we've been following along here, he has hastened to his death as well. Although notice that this mixed bag of a priest seems to finish on an upturn, it seems to me. He is in verse 14... um, Excuse me, verse 13, his heart is trembling, not for his sons, but for the ark. And then in verse 18, it's when the ark is mentioned that he falls off his seat and dies. He finishes his life, it seems to me, looking a little more like the great high priest that he is, should have been prefiguring all along, who is deeply concerned for the glory of God. But because of this poor choice by the elders... 30 more thousand died plus 
three of their priests plus this woman. But worst of all, the sad results of this inadequate solution was that the ark was taken and that the glory of God departed with it. Remember, the ark was where God had promised to meet with his people. And now the ark goes. And with it, the glory of God, the presence of God goes. God, of course, could have stayed and met with his people while the ark was with the Philistines. But the idea seems to be that God is leaving them as well. The ark is a picture of the glory of God departing from them in its own right. I think Phineas's wife is right when she says the glory has departed from Israel. What bad things can happen when we don't repent of our sins, but keep running ahead with the wrong solutions, with inadequate solutions, with solutions that forget or are ignorant of or just bury beneath the surface repentance that is needed and called for. Don't let it be that way in your life. Be zealous and repent when you are found in sin. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. For, 1 John, if we walk in the light, if we come out into the open with our sins, if we walk in the light as he himself, God himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, praise God, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin.